Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome, and thanks for coming, and welcome to another Word in Your Ear. Now, the events that we're going to be talking about broadly take place over a period of 10 days uh, in the autumn of uh, 1976. And I thought I would just check, because often events get tidied up by history. And I thought I'd just check the charts in the week that we're talking about. It's going to be depressing. And, uh, yeah, so here, the first week of 1976, the British charts featured... um, Chicago, Leo Sayer, Demis Roussos, the Manhattans, Shawaddy Waddy, yes, Sherbet, and Smokey. So we should really be eternally grateful that something quite exciting was going on in the, in the London clubs and that this great man was out there um, to record it all for us in this terrific book which he has uh, just put out. Pictures that have never been seen before, am I right? Unpublished photographs. It's called Spirit of 76, London Punk Eyewitness. Terrific pictures. And uh, some of his uh, selected writings with a forward by John Savage. So please welcome John Ingham. So, John, you were, I mean, you are half Australian, in fact. You were in London in 1975 oh, yeah, and I working for Sounds. Am I right? For yeah, Sounds? Well, yeah, I started out as a freelancer, so I was doing NME. And there's you in 1975. Hardly six. changed at all, John. <laughs> oh. No, I mean that. I still, yeah. have, the, I still have that tie. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I came, I started writing in America, uh, came over here in 72, joined Sounds at the beginning of 75. That's the short version. And what were you writing about before punk rock? Before which I've just noticed that yeah. sounds cover has some terrific lines on it. Genesis, the feel goods, and glue is what they're <laughs> writing about. That's brilliant. But before all that happened, just just paint a picture of a the sounds office and b the kind of things you were writing about, the kind of things that were going on in the London clubs. Sounds office was right at the top end of Finsbury Park Road. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, and this horrible... Above the distribution exactly place. Right. Oh, my goodness, yeah. A yeah. warehouse below. It was, it was just one of those horrible 60s open-plan offices with trestle tables running along... One, two, four... Eight people facing each other. Um, and there were, weirdly, it was... It sort of broke up. You had... Uh, Jeff Barton was well into metal and heavy rock and all that stuff. And I was... I don't know what I was liking 
just about anything weird and strange. Barbara Sharon was there doing all the, you know, Stones, Clapton, Who, etc. So you had uh, Vivian Goldman doing a lot of reggae. So you had this kind of genre by person. And it, and it was an incredibly eclectic coverage, which at the time we were number three. But what I find lately is people come out of the woodwork and tell you that it was their favorite paper. So. But you were kind of, in your intro in the book, talk about how miserably flaccid and disappointing yeah. the whole yeah. music scene was at the time. I mean, who were the worst offenders? I think here are some of the worst offenders. I've got a picture of the Arrows here. And Sherbert, that is Sherbert. That is actually that. Sherbert. That, that's Sherbert. That, so is it any wonder that we, people were pleased to see the arrival of punk rock? <laughs> well, what's funny about Arrows is the first time I saw the Pistols was early April in a strip club on Brewer Street called El Paradise. Uh, the dirtiest show in town was a sign on the window. And these guys are leaning up against the wall, watching the band. And it was really bizarre. <laughs> you know, it was like this... Imagining what? The, when the, worlds collide. You see, you, know? you probably think they're thinking their careers were over, but I, I doubt that. No, they're probably I don't thinking think these guys can't play and they won't last for a second. Well, yeah. interestingly, one of them wrote, I love rock and roll. So, you know, something came out of it. Oh, good grief. Yes, yeah. He's probably retired on an island somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> member of Arrows. They came from Enfield, didn't they? Arrows, I think I'm right in saying. I'm not the world's Arrows expert. <laughs> but I've been put I'm, on the spot here. I'm the, I'm the Enfield expert. Oh, so right. I, think, I think Arrows okay, came from yeah, what, Ireland. Uh, but uh, why did Sh- uh, Sherbert particularly aroused your ire? <laughs> oh, no, I think it, it was... What can you say? I mean, Top of the Pops was just this kind of beige, of blandness of beige. And, Tony, and I remember Tony Blackburn, especially with that cheesy grin, and you just despaired. Absolutely. And of course, then, he got swept away, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the other thing was, I found certainly by end of mid to end 75, by then I'd been writing five years, six years, and it was just, everything was so dull. You know, the new bands that you saw were pretty rubbish. Um, I never got that inspired by pub rock out of one or two, like Dr. Feelgood. But there wasn't anything that made you want to like change your life or change your day even. And then the big guys, the Stones, the Who, uh, who else? Faces. You know, they, were, they weren't even reaching the standards they'd set in previous albums. So I was just getting duller and duller. And, and, and the just, show you saw with the Sex Pistols, there was only 20 people there or something. It was in the strip club. So yeah, at the most 20. Why did you go to see that? Was it, was it the name of Sex Pistols? The name. The name. I'd, I'd, I'd consciously started looking for, like, let's find an, a new group, somebody who's going to be the next generation. I was so sick of, you know, I'd gone to... Oh, no, that came later. Um, and so I was looking, and it wasn't really um, productive. And then I saw the name Sex Pistols in a review in the NME, and I just thought, God, that is the best name ever. And you know how you can project on a group, like everything, everything that's lacking that you want to see, that's, I put that into that name. And they'd ended the review with a quote from Paul Cook, and he said, we're not into music, we're into chaos. And I just thought that was brilliant. It was so funny. But rather in the same way as Neil Armstrong goes through life, or went through life, um, you know, with people saying he was the first man on the moon, you yeah. were the first man to interview the, the Sex yeah. Pistols. So how did that happen? You went back to the sounds office and said, I, just I seen this saw the group. Um, which was fascinating. Uh, that raised a huge lot of questions, more than it answered. Uh, went in the next morning, and Alan Lewis, who was the editor, said, uh, so what were they like? And I started telling him, and I can remember the first thing I said was, wow, it's really interesting, and off I went. And he'd ask the odd question, and then... What like, kind of things were you... What, what reaction did you have? Well, he kept... What did I, I have? Yeah, what I'm you a nice, Well, 
the drummer's wearing a Pink Floyd T-shirt, and he's written really big letters in, in heavy ink, I hate. And I thought, that's good. I like that. John was attacking, verbally attacking between songs. And I'd never seen a singer who didn't want to be loved. And so that was really interesting. And he was, you could tell right off. Um, I wouldn't have used the word star, but the boy had a lot of charisma straight away. You know, he owned the stage, even though it was about the size of that table. Um, and songs, you know, it was like, I mean, I, I really like the 60s version of punk rock, so Count Five, Psychotic Reaction, 96 Tears, all those things, all the stuff on Nuggets. So for me, it kind of sat in that area. And, you, and even though songs sort of sounded the same, they didn't. And some of them, you go, that's pretty good. No, that's not so good. And then they did The Monkeys, Not Your Stepping Stone, right in the middle of it. And I thought, okay, for a cover version with the way they look and the way they're playing, that's interesting. That's really fascinating. And so that was what was kind of going on when I was talking to Alan. And how was the interview? We, we have some pictures of them at the time, actually, Malcolm and, and uh, Johnny in, in 76. And what Malcolm, that is exactly what Johnny looked like the first time I saw him. He had that sweater on. It's ripped up the side. It's got holes in it. He's got safety pins on it. I was like, okay, that's different. Um, that you is, had to be auditioned, didn't you, in the, before you could interview Yeah, him. yeah. So right? Alan's, Alan said, you've got to interview them. I protested, and he pointed out I've been talking about the band for 15 minutes. Which normally you'd spend maybe a minute, you know. But that's the kind of thing it threw up. So, uh, yeah, Malcolm made me interview him first. And he came swirling into this room on a very hot day, dressed all in leather. And um, completely, you know, not hot, not nothing. And he laid out this manifesto, which was pretty much what I'd been thinking. So I was convinced, OK, I'm happy. <laughs> so broadly, the manifesto was what, in a, in a nutshell? It was what's popular now, do the opposite. So people have bands have long hair, you have short hair. Um, everyone wears flares, straight legs. Um, no one, this band never plays in a pub. If you're going to see them, you have to pay to see them, because then you're committed. If you walk into a pub for nothing, and it's the band playing, where's the commitment in that? Which I thought was the most interesting thing he said out of everything. Um, it was kind of like, it was this weird mix of, of Gene Vincent and Little Richard. You know, very much so. And he, harked, he did name both of them while he was talking. Actually, Johnny was very influenced by, well, Eno and Roxy Music, but also by sort of Tangerine Dream and Can. And, you yeah, know, Can he named, The Doors he named. Yeah. Um, Eno. What else did he name? That was about it. That he, oh, and reggae. That's, that's what he admitted to. But then you find out later that half of them, these guys were really into yes and things like that. <laughs> well, well, Malcolm told them that they mustn't mention that. John yeah. was a huge Van de Graaff generator well, Captain, fan. Captain he was told he had, on pain of death never to mention that. To the Sensible friend. was a, um, an incredible string band fan and a yes fan. And soft machine. And soft well, machine. He used to follow them around in his car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that first encounter with you as the first interviewer must have been absolutely key in their, you know, their career. They must have seen it as really important. We, we need to yeah. get our, our story out, you know, because people heard about them like you did before they heard them. Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing was, I mean, it was a huge double-page piece, you know, which was I had no say in. I, they just, Alan just said, right. So I did. Um, and then uh, about three days after the publishing date, they did a gig at the Nashville with the 101ers, and the entire place was absolutely jammed. And I figured somewhere in that was the effect of the piece. 
right. which was kind of, you know, oh, it works. You say something good and everyone comes down. And I was like, well, you know, that didn't happen again. <laughs> We've got a picture of the audience, I think, uh, one of the yeah, Sex Pistols gigs, which this... we'll talk about a bit later. But that's the other interesting thing is that everyone thinks, you know, that in hindsight it was all people in their punk rock uh, couture and it all happened overnight but of course it didn't you know there's a load of people there in old great coats with long hair who would have seen Rugelator the night before this is, this is the end of November at Notre Dame Hall just off Leicester Square it's being taped for a Saturday morning TV show that um, Janet Street Porter ran uh, which is one reason why it's so bright which is great this guy had been around forever that's Nora who is Ariup's mother and John Lydon's wife that's Kenny Morris, who was around forever. None of these people ever seen him before, never saw him again. Oh, really? So this Same with this lot. And I'm this is the interesting thing. is for the, This was really the first time you saw tons of people you'd never seen, and you never saw him again. And, you know, it just suddenly exploded out of, you know, this kind of private uh, party. This is the guy on the cover of your book, in fact, isn't it? Yeah. You, How it's you don't know who he is. Well, weirdly... This is a fabulous photo. There, weird, weirdly, um... I, I photographed the clash at Lacey Lady out in Ilford, and there were, again, 18 people in the audience. And um, somebody posted it. I'd put a couple of photos on Facebook f- from it, and one, some guy just posted one of them. And out of the woodwork came these guys going, I was there that night, and they started talking. And by the end of the night, they, had not, they knew not only every name of who was in the club, but they knew, th- they knew that guy and the woman who's on the cover. Everybody's been named. <laughs> No escape. So you found them. But, but photography wasn't your main thing at no. all. So w- what made you take pictures? Because that um, was quite unusual at the time. You know, there was a strict just, division of labour between writers and photographers. The, I saw the, cl- the Clash held a... I don't know what you call it. Uh, a showcase at their rehearsal room. And there was about 15 of us or so. And uh, when we walked in, it was all, it's all completely white, and there's a very large mural on the background of the cityscape that Paul Simonon had painted. And they've got all the amps laid out. It's almost like a church in there. And these amps and the speaker cabinets are painted day-glow pink. And uh, the band just walked out in single file, didn't say a word, very like a little army group, and plugged in and just went, bam! And it was at 100 miles an hour. And by the time you sort of thought, what was that? It stopped. And the next one started. And I just, I really was like, I don't know what this is, but I really want more of it. So I was an instant convert. And I started following them everywhere. I saw probably 20 of the first 23 or 4 gigs. And um, there's no one photographing any of it. And There's nobody there at all. There's no photographers. No photographers. And there's anywhere from... 50 or 100 people like Saturday night at Tiddenford Leisure Centre late in Buzzer <laughs> to 18 to people that. at uh, Lacey Lady. I think we got a picture of them at the um, I think it might be the Royal College. Oh no, this yeah. is the so this is the, this is the, the yeah, kind of crowd any, that, that we're... The, the reason I picked up the camera just to finish um, you know, it's like Jackson Pollock has dressed them they're completely covered in paint all artfully done and they've got slogans printed and stenciled up their arms and down their backs and and plus it's the most kinetic thing you've ever seen in your life all at 100 miles an hour and um, and there's no photographer and I'm thinking someone's got to record this or it's just going to vanish and no one will ever know and it's too good not to be documented so I got a camera and bought some film and started shooting 
And because I wasn't doing it to be published, I picked up color film as well, because of course, they look like colorful people, you've got to get color. And it turns out it's the only color that ever got taken, because in the commercial world, there was no market for that. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's one of the many things, you know, when you look at this book and you think, God, this is a vanished world, you know. Yeah. I suppose it's the, it's the fact that an event could take place without having pictures taken of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, be, there will be people yeah. take, will take pictures in here tonight, you know, for really good reasons. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know but absolutely anything is photographed, you know. Yeah. But the notion that it wasn't in those days. And, and taking a picture was quite hard and expensive, it's expensive. It? it? was expensive. And people keep, I keep getting asked, why didn't you take more photos? Why isn't it more colour? Because it was expensive. You had to buy film. You had to process film. You know, we were like rock journalists. We didn't do it for money. <laughs> so you uh, shot all this stuff and it just sat in a yeah. cupboard? Yeah, I never took it to anybody, so I put it in a box and it stayed there for the next 35 years. And what made you decide to publish it now? Because none of these have ever been seen, have they? No, um, Cornell University is, uh, was compiling, it has compiled a punk archive. And the guy doing the work, was put in touch with me and he came out to my house and he's going through all this stuff I've kept over all the years. And I had printed some of the photos and so he saw them and went, what's this? I explained it to him and he said, that's a book, let's go. And that's what we did. That's how it came about. So who are some of the characters in this picture? Is that Viv, okay. Viv Albertine on the far left? I first, think. first of all, they're looking yeah. John, they're setting up cameras and that. John has found a fright wig, this huge blonde wig, and he's mincing about on stage, which is why they're looking the way they are. Viv Albertine, no idea who he is. Never saw this guy before. Um, this is Sarah Hall, I think her last name is. When I interviewed John, when I interviewed the band the first time, John came in late, and he came in with two ladies, of whom this was one. So she's got rights to say she was really there at the beginning. Uh, Susie. And that's Susie, isn't it? Yeah. And there's um, Steve Severin, Kenny Morris. So that's the base. That's, that's Susie's boyfriend. Um, so these are the ones. Oh, and the other great thing about this is um, Susie. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, I thought, that it was watching these as the you know the first fans. Um, and when you talk to them, they were all coming out of these backgrounds of like really square pegs and round holes, mostly from suburbia. And, um, and Susie got, a, got attention fairly early on, her photograph in the papers and that. And you could see that, you know, this was, and not just her, but they were getting attention, they were getting publicity, they were, getting a sh they were seeing opportunity being put in front of them, because there was a lot of that kind of philosophy going on inside, you know, the 50 people to whom this scene consisted. And... Susie at this point, so Susie got up, she's done her first Susie in the Banshees gig at, uh, at the Pundit Club Punk Festival, so that was the end of September. She's been in papers. She's just been interviewed for the TV program about five minutes before. <laughs> she likes this. Yeah. That, is a, that is the greatest pose of somebody who sees their well, they future. They had incredible celebrity overnight, didn't they? Yeah. They became even, you know, Absolutely. Sue Catwoman. And all, even even yeah. the kind of hangers-on became kind of massive celebrities in their own right. I thought that was one of the most interesting... I mean, you know, there's, there's after the, when it gets revisionist after the, effect, after the event, there's a lot of um, talk about the levelling of the playing field, but it was very true that almost anybody could climb up on a stage out of the audience and become a star overnight. At, in some level or not, and if you were, if you could get good at it pretty quick, or if you'd been slaving in a bedroom and were good at it, 
you had an opportunity that was rarely available. No one told you what to do. No record company said you fit that pigeonhole. You look like this. You know, I think that's really interesting that Susie comes up with what her idea of being in a group is about and what music should sound like. The Slits do their version of it. And I think that's really, really unusual, especially for women in, in popular music, that they can be whoever the hell they want to be, and nobody says, you can't do that. Well, we've got The Clash, uh, as I say, I think, uh, at the... There um, she is again. There she is again, with, with uh, Billy Idol, top right, yeah. I think. Um, but the next one's The Clash at the, at the RCA, and uh, it, it struck me that you, you couldn't... That's, the la- that's Lacey Lady. Oh, it's Lacey Lady. So there's, you know, but they've got the Jackson Pollock shirts on. They've got yep. the kind of red guard armbands. He's got, he's got all the cords painted down the neck so he knows where to put his fingers because <laughs> he's never played guitar before. And Mick Jones on the test, I think, dribbled paint physically yeah. down his legs. This is, these are red and red striped trousers. Black paint. And the other thing is, because they're all almost all the same height, you'll see them at another gig and they're all wearing the same clothes in different combinations. <laughs> Knives in West 11 on his shirt there. It makes you think that, that punk rock couldn't have happened without the press in, in some ways. Do you know oh, what I mean? Because there was so, much, so much to explain. It's such a complicated image. Because, uh, sorry, There's so much going well, on. Yeah, you, know. you see, the, the kids keep coming back to this point. The key, the key incident in all this is you telling Alan Lewis he wears a T-shirt saying, Pink Floyd, I hate. Okay. Yeah. Every, Alan gets that. Alan's not a guy going to go to a gig like this. No. Alan's an old soul boy. But Alan understands that that idea will, you know, go through society really quickly. Yeah, I thought that was his strength. Was yeah, it? absolutely. He would, he would give people freedom and push people, and if something came out of it. But for me, I, after I did the first story, I think I did one other interview, after about two months, which in weekly papers is a long time, <laughs> People in the business kept going to me, how's your band, the Sex Pistols? And I, cause I heard, your band, aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so it's their registering, and I'm the only guy writing about it. So I just thought, I'm going to just go commando on this. It's a, a pure propaganda. I'm not going to be a critic. I'll throw that stuff into it. But this is about making it as exciting as possible to 15-year-old, probably boys, right. out there in suburbia somewhere or anywhere. You've got to see this, because it's really exciting, and I tried to keep writing it so that do you, way. Do you agree? And, you know, Mark and I often, you know, sit there in the long winter evenings. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, like, in our gay menage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the, the disappearance of the music prize. The, the great contribution of the music prize was it made things more exciting than they were. Oh, I'd agree with that. You'd agree? Yeah. And this was a classic case of it. I mean, all right, it was exciting. But, you know, it was the fact that you could write about it. Well, you had great... great. How can I phrase it? There was great material to start with. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the point is people... As I've been sort of talking to people about the book, I keep getting a a common question is, did John Lydon start fully formed or was he created? You don't create John Lydon. John Lydon creates John Lydon. And it's like Mick Jagger probably stepped on a stage. You have to learn how to be Mick Jagger. But you don't make that person. They are themselves. They are those once-in-a-generation kind of tabula rasa. They've come on fully formed. All John did was learn how to manipulate his presentation 
you know, really. And also learn a stagecraft. I mean, that's clear. You have to learn a stagecraft. But John was John from day one. Absolutely. Do you think that the press was selling, you know, 250,000 copies of NME or something at the time, weren't they? 200,000 copies? 200,000, yeah. We yeah. sold yeah, 120 so, so and we the, were the, the yeah. low guys. So the Clash would sell whatever it was, maybe 30 or 40,000 albums. But they, by sold being 100, the front cover they sold 100,000 by Christmas of 77 of the first album. Oh, yeah, complete with no airplay or anything, which I think does sort of say, yeah. well, partly the press, but also there's a guy with a record under his sleeve and going up to his mate going, you've got to hear this. Yeah, yeah. But there's far more people read about these groups than yeah. ever yeah. saw them. Oh, I agree. Bound to be the case. I mean, the I biggest, knew all about them. The biggest audience for the Pistols would have been the 100 Club. What's the 100 Club when it's overcrowded? 250, 300? Yeah, something like that. That was the biggest Sex yeah. Pistols audience except for Winterland, the very last thing they played. So where was this again? This, this is, is Lacey, Lacey Lady. Lady, Lacey which is, Lady. And this, <laughs> this is where um, Spandau Ballet got their start. How's so that? how many people would be in there that night? There were 18. Eight. Eighteen. <laughs> so was the was the promoter thrilled with the turnout there that, that evening, or Did he ask mildly disappointed? <laughs> I don't know. I do, you never know. darkened my towels again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's fascinating is they got up on stage and they played like it was full. All right. You know, which is a good thing. Yeah, and um, I mean the thing. Yeah, you know, first of all, strummers played forever. Mick Jones had been playing for, what, four or five years, probably? I mean, they, they, they were a functioning band. The only guy who couldn't, who'd never played, once he couldn't, is Paul. And so they had songs, they had stagecraft, they were really exciting. I mean, at the, at the audition thing, the, the, the showcase, Keith Levine, who was in it at that point, so there's three guitarists, He's literally running up the wall. I mean, he just runs at the wall while he's playing and goes up about four feet and bounces back down. Tiddenford Leisure Center had car a carpeted stage which ramped up like that. And they were literally just racing at it and going straight up while they played. And they weren't wasting time tuning and saying, this is a song we wrote Oh, yeah, yesterday. no, they talked about in between, right. but they still finished an hour-long set in 30 minutes. I mean, they played right. 12 to 40. And the funniest part was, you know, they played, they got off. Suddenly, Joe Strummer's running up to me, and God knows why I mean. He's going, John, John, you, you've got to help us. I'm like, okay, what? The promoter's really angry because we've been booked for 60 minutes. Oh. <laughs> and we don't have any more songs. What should we do? And I'm like, um, do the whole thing I said, uh, what, are your three most, what are the three songs you like best? And he went, okay, yeah. I said, okay, go up and play them again. Quite. Which is what they did. And they kind of eat, and I said, and slow it down a bit so it takes longer. <laughs> Because the Ramones can't play for 60 minutes in those days, can they? They, they, they remote, well, God. 30 songs if they had. They had, um, when they played the Roundhouse, which was 77, they went for an hour, which oh, was 25 songs, and they stopped three times in all that. <laughs> Stop once for lunch. It still, ranks as one of the, it still ranks as one of the most amazing things I think I've ever seen. I mean, they literally stopped three times playing all, because they would count off before the, the previous song finished. And it was just relentless. It was great. I mean, I always assumed, I've always taken it that they're an art project. They're concept art, and they're brilliant at it. I may be completely wrong, but <laughs> I'm going to have to be dissuaded. I can remember first hearing that Ramones album when it first came into the... I was working in the H&V shop, we played it, and everybody in the shops laughed. Yeah, I thought of course. It was funny. It is funny. Yeah, the people who weren't kind of offended <laughs> by it. 
It was just hilarious. Yeah. The whole notion that it was going to start that quickly and finish soon afterwards, and then there was going to be another one. And the second verse, the same as the first verse. Yeah. All four lines of it. <laughs> I mean, but also that first album was really important in helping in moving things forward. You know, because it was simple, it was easy to play, and so the you know budding musicians were finding that was a, a kind of a formative album in that sense. You could learn the song and learn how to play three chords. Well, out of the press came all this TV. There we so are. That changed there she's you know. being interviewed. Do you so. know what the, the show was called? I can't remember. Wasn't the six o'clock show? Remember. It was a Janice Reporter show, wasn't yeah, it? Because TV was remember. very important, wasn't yeah. it, with punk? In yeah, all well, kinds TV, of ways. TV was its. Um, I was going to say downfall. <laughs> the Bill Grundy well, the thing. Bill Grundy thing well, happened Bill about Grundy two weeks thing. after this. First of all, you had Janice Street Porter and... You well, know. there was Tony Wilson with So It Goes. Right, of course. And that was the first time the Pistols were on TV. And once again, Malcolm was really good at never letting the band being seen without uh, fans in the, in the grouping somewhere. Right. So that he, he kept pushing it was a movement. It wasn't just a band who could be kind of ignored or um, dissembled. You know, there were fans there as well. And um, so, so it goes. And then Janet had done one in the summer uh, where she interviewed them up in at Denmark Street in their re- rehearsal room, I think was the official title for it. Um, and then she did this was the second one. So this is November, November 15th. And then Grundy came about, what, 10 days later? Something like that, two right. weeks. <laughs> A private party became public menace. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, so by the time the papers got round, right the end of the, the tabloids got round yeah. to it, it was, they were learning off the television, weren't they? Yeah. Right. So television is often underestimated in, in you know, selling these things. Because what television liked about it was just the idea of a scene, wasn't it? You could point a camera at it and it looked interesting. Well, it looks fabulous. It's very, I mean, I think, you know, the importance of the first year is that it's art school, basically. It's people who like raiding dressing up boxes. But that's the thing that I love about your cover picture. I keep coming back to this, that it kind of looks like the member of Adam and the Ants who was too, yeah. too cool to get in the group, really. You know what I mean? No, he, he sort of looks as oh, he's gone in the dressing up box, hasn't he? He, he looks yeah. fabulous, you know. And it's interesting that it ended up being recorded in a monochrome way, you know, that everybody tried, yeah. to, tried to sell it as being gritty, whereas it really wasn't, was it? Oh, not at all. Not at all. Especially, you know, when you... you, I I counted it out one morning just out of curiosity, and I think there's about 76 or 78 people who are responsible for the whole of punk happening. That's the entire group who was there in the first year before it became overground. And to a T, everybody loved dressing up. It was all about colour, definitely. And there was was no rule to anything, you know. It... um, you kind of could tell by attitude, oh, that person's a punk, because of just how they walked or something. You could just feel it. But the reason it, was in, you know, it appeared in black and white is because the, the newspapers couldn't print colour, could they? I mean, they, they only printed no, black and no white. there was no market for it. There yeah. was, everything was yeah. printed in black and white. This is the Notre Dame Hall uh, picture of the pistols, which is fantastic. Yeah. I think. It's just a wonderful S- photograph. Sid Vicious. Oh, right. John Savage. This guy was Rodent, R-O-A-D, who um, was a Clash roadie after this. He'd just gotten out of jail, which is why he's got his prison number painted on his back. And he's got, like, you can just see one here. There's, you know, these arrows, like a cliché. Marco, who later uh, went with Sinead O'Connor and arranged uh, Nothing Compares to You. Um, This guy was in a group called Monochrome Set for five minutes. I mean, you know... (laughs) 
we've got them all. There's no crazy pogoing going on there, is there? Oh, there's a mosh pit down the front. Oh, is there? there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. In fact, there's in I take took a couple of photos of it in the in color in the book where you can I'm sort of right at the back edge getting knocked around and there's just guys going like this and banging into each other and having the best time of their life. Have we got that picture actually? Have we got that color picture? I don't know if we've got it. Of the guy and we have Oh no, we've got this. Oh, well, this is the pistols uh, live. So, give us some impression he, of what that. He leaves the group five minutes after this is over. What, literally? Yeah, literally. This is Glenn's last gig with the band. Supposedly, so. Well, were like you there when? He, Pardon? Were you there when he was when he left? Oh well, I mean, he played the gig, and I mean, there's a great photo I've got of all four of them, which at the time, you know, I'm just taking photos, and everybody's got a, a complete look on their face of what they're doing. You know, Mr. Guitar Hero here. And Glenn's got this look on his face of how soon is this going to be over? And I mean, I might be reading it, but he, this was the last time they played as, as this foursome. And he's just, I mean, John's fascinating to watch on stage because he was so calculating all the time. And he kind of, it, he had his own rock star, I'll call it a rock star or, or front man routine, definitely. Um, in movement and that. But then in between, he, was, he would do these kind of combinations of baiting the audience or being very friendly. If he liked what was going on, he could be very humorous. Um, and at the same time, extremely calculating. There were these moments he'd just stop and he'd just sort of do this. And it would just hang on there for a while. <laughs> Um, Which nobody did. I mean, you oh, never see anything like that. I mean, that's the whole point. You know, he attacks the audience. I mean, what front man doesn't want to be loved? You know, I'm, I want to be famous. And John just didn't have it. But it was a, incredibly charismatic to watch. And they were a great band. I mean, you know, there's, I talk about it in the book. I chart the two, not even two weeks, like ten days. I mean, I, my view is bands are good. They get good. They get better and better the more they play. There's a point, if they're going to be great, they go from very good to really great in about five minutes. It, it happens really quickly. And in their case, uh, it happened in about ten days. And um, at Manchester, they went up to Manchester the second time, and they're playing in the Lesser Hall, which is up above the Free Trade Hall. And all of those Manchester groups are back to see them this time, you know, the guys who become the Manchester groups. And um, they were being really good, and he was just the best I'd ever seen him. He'd been going through this period of almost being like a country and western picker. Everything was really clean and elegant almost. And then that night, he just shoved everything together. He was a guy for feedback and distortion. He loved all that. And suddenly he had it all together at the same time. And um, all of a sudden, without any announcement, there's this new... Wait a minute, that's a new song. I've never heard this before. And all of a sudden, the first lines come out. I am an Antichrist. I am an Antichrist. It's like, okay. And it just went on and on and on. And then it was like literally in three minutes, they turned into this great band. They just nailed that song like nothing. And, and I turned around to McLaren. We're standing at the back. And I turned around to McLaren. And his mouth's just sort of slightly open. He's in this kind of wide-eyed look at them. And then they go into the UDA, the IRA, etc. And I turned back to Malcolm again, and his mouth was hanging open at that point. And it was just, you just said, okay, there we go, three minutes. And they just went, they did that thing and became great. And, and right after it, everybody got out of their seat and was just going mad at the front. And there was a guy <laughs> shouting stooges as they were playing, smashing up seats with his fist. And there was a guy pogo, not pogoing, 
kangaroo bounding down the, down the aisle, like literally knees up around his ears, this high off the ground. I mean, it was complete chaos in the best possible way. So you didn't get a lot of that at Pink Floyd gigs, did you? Let's be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, there's the guy. The there right. Sorry. And there's a colour picture. So there is, you go. I mean, a lot of that's just people just wanting attention, isn't it? You know, <laughs> punk, punk, punk fans desperately wanted to be in the papers and just, just wanted kind yeah. of celebrity. I don't know. I think it's just kids letting off steam. You think so? Yeah, there's no, there's no one telling you you can't do something in this, event, in this arena. It, you know, everything is permitted. Nothing is forbidden. And people just go crazy and have fun. A Sid Vicious you described as, as, the, as the, a village idiot. The village idiot, uh, yeah. so is that, Was that a, a, a persona that he'd acquired or yeah. put on? Or? Oh, yeah. Sid was really smart. Oh, that's, that's actually... And there's Joe, there's Strummer, Joe Strummer. Yeah. So here you go. Uh, Bruce Lee. Uh, what's that one say? You can f- join, join if you can fight. Uh, under heavy manners. A lot of reggae phrases being used. I think that was what came out of, <clears throat> certainly for the clash, um, that reggae idea that you could talk about, that you, know, you, you reported the news as, as your song lyrics, which I think really informs their first album a lot. Um, and that was um, the importance of reggae, I think, gets missed a lot now. But, uh, and it wasn't just because Don Letts didn't have any punk records to play. Uh, Simonon was into it. Uh, Leiden was into it. Caroline Kuhn, who was the other writer besides me in 76, talking about all this. We both loved it. I just said one day to Caroline, we were doing a lot of stuff together, just quietly, not telling anybody that we were comparing notes. And kind of, you can, we can fight about this afterwards. <laughs> you know. I said, why don't we just say punk's like reggae? And she said, you can't say that. And I said, why not? We'll say it, it'll be true. And that's <laughs> how we did. So go back to Sid. Yeah. You said he was very calculating. Sid, I don't know why Sid wanted to be the village idiot, but he, that was, you know, it was, it, he was kind of a bit larger than life. And um, when I started talking to him, because I, I did an interview with him, and uh, there we go, much later on, um, he just came out. I mean, he had he he would encapsulate these great sound bites, um, and and then at other times be insanely inflammatory. And after a while, I was like, "I'll sit, knock it off." And he just cracked up laughing. He said, "Okay," and he turned into this really quite normal guy, very very smart. And um, I think it was just you know, he, as we find out later when we find read the the biographies and whatever. He had a terrible childhood. I think it was a wall he put up to deflect people. Mm-hmm. And he could probably, you know, he's another attention seeker at the end of the day. Yeah. But what was really important about him and John was their ability to articulate what they were doing. Yeah. It, to come up with their slogans. I didn't have time for the summer of love. I was too busy playing with my action, action man. Which, 40 years later, still being quoted. Yeah. Right? And what was the other one? Um... Oh, I don't like sex. It's just yes, 20 seconds nice. of squishing noises. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Squelching noises. I yeah, Squelching noises, yeah. Oh, what a great line. There's various other people who talk But, you know, the thing, you know, he said, oh, drumming is easy. Anybody can do that. And when he gets up on stage with Susie and the Banshees, he's played for all of about four days, and yet he actually kept the beat. It was very motoric. He's going like that and, you know, hitting, hitting the snare and the kick at the same time. But he kept the beat. And he kept it up for like 10 minutes, non-stop. I mean, that's not easy. First time you've ever done it. This uh, is fantastically 
a wonderful picture somehow. There's something incredibly unromantic about it. You know, this is the, the highlighting. Old, and these the kind these of, are the ultimate punks of all time. Yeah. Come on. How punk is that look? So this you is Vic Goddard and Subway Sect. Vic Goddard, Subway Sect. It looks like they've just come from their job at the bank. Um, is that the most unsexy guitar pose you've ever seen in your life? I mean, it's brilliant. And... Um, I don't know if you've got it in the thing, that, but um, at this gig, uh, uh, Rob, the guitarist, plays a solo. Vic lies down on the floor like this and watches him. Another one, he takes a big handkerchief out of his nose and wipes it. He wipes his nose. Uh, Lacy Lady, he got off the stage and walked out in the middle of an empty floor and watched the band for <laughs> like 16 bars. It was just, I would have called it Dada, but it, you never got a sense that they were thinking of any of this. They were just doing it. And then they had great songs that were kind of sort of 25 degrees off. You couldn't quite figure it out. So you went off yeah. and managed Generation I X. I did go off and managed Generation what, 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 what? Say that again. <laughs> yeah. I, I did go off and managed Generation X. <laughs> for a year. For a, for a, for a fun-filled year. Oh, it was fun-filled. Actually, it was fun-filled. Well, what did you see in them? What, what, why did you decide to do that? Well, I'd... Um, when Grundy broke, I was in hospital. I'd collapsed a lung, which was from having a year of fun, if I was really honest. Um, and I started thinking to myself as I was lying there in bed, going, you know, this is kind of a bit silly. I was like, I sort of did all this work, you know, propagandizing like crazy. And, uh, and then, the, and, oh, and I'd been heard at this point, um, I'd been told, like, Miles Copeland, who had been managing Wishbone Ash and some other bands and became manager of the police, he, had, he was suddenly in the room with Stuart Copeland, his brother, drummer of Curved Air at that point, going, you've got to get into this, Stuart, because this is the future, you know. And I was like, ah, oh, the money men are showing up. So I was thinking, oh, this is a bit... I'd hate to be the guy who sort of stood on the sidelines while everyone else made a ton of money. So, OK, let's, what, so what's to do? And the choice was start a record company like Rough Trade. But no, Rough Trade weren't started at that point. But yeah, start a record company or manage a band. And I talked to a friend who was into managing a band, so that's what we ended up doing. And Pistols were gone, Clash was gone. Who else is there? Buzzcocks are gone, because they're, they're up in Manchester anyway. Who else is there? And that bright young spark had the best songs of anybody else that I heard. So uh, that's how we ended up together. Did you make any money out of them? Not enough to be worth the trouble, but enough to have said it was fun. And how did the trouble manifest itself? Oh, we couldn't do that. <laughs> let me put... I think, I think there could be a good cricket 11 out of Billy's managers, put it that way. Yes, yes a revolving door. Yeah, he's... he's let's, he is... He's, he's not, certainly not the only artist who in those days was unmanageable, but I, from his point of view, it probably made perfect sense because we were trying to make him do things we thought was in his best interest, but he had different views about that, and he might have been right. And I know people like to laugh about him, but I'll defend him t any day. He made three or four of the best rock and roll songs of the 80s without any doubt, and they're awesome even now. They are tremendous records. Well... When the, by the time the Damned played the Hope and Anchor, yeah. um, this was New Year's which was night. in New Year's 77, I think, New Year's night, which is 70. a great photograph, it's a fantastic picture. Thank You're you. sort of already implying in the book that, 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 that the bubble has burst and it's, it's yeah. all over, that the, the high streets are starting to move in and manufacture. And when we worked in, in Carnaby Street in the late 70s, I mean, punk rock was just 
blokes with you know yeah. luminous green Mohicans with Sid and Nancy T-shirts with sold them by the yeah. by Sid's not dead. That's right, Sid's not dead exactly. <laughs> what we're missing here is I'm on literally I'm about four feet from him. This is a wide-angle lens. And I'm, we're standing right on the edge of the stage. It's 300 people crammed into the basement of the Hope and Anchor. Sweat running out. Well, it's just jammed. And I think this is the point where it just goes completely over. You know, you can show up. Oh, I've got some safety pins from my mum's sewing up box. I'll get a black bin liner. Here you go. Done. Which is great. I mean, I think it's fantastic that that's what happens. But when it gets, you know, as George Mellie says, you know, it rolls into style. And it became a very stupid style. And meanwhile, you know, everybody else has moved on. I think it's kind of interesting that the bands that kind of last... I mean, we talk about it from an English context, but, you know, Talking Heads, Television, Blondie, they're the kind of the ones that carry on and um, become more interesting musically as time passes. But it does seem incredible that the dam is still going, really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the groups that have been, uh, that that have been devised to get rid of the people who've been going for 25 years, they themselves are still going <laughs> 40 if years later. If you'd said in... 77 or 78 that the damned are going to be the, the uh, A, they're going to be together in 40 years or B, the only ones together in 40 years by, what was it, Buzzcocks uh, you, that's ludicrous they were like the Marx Brothers on stage at 78 RPM <laughs> Do you ever bump into any of these people now? Um, well I did stuff with them last year um, I ran, the British Library did a punk exhibition right, right, yes. and, and um, there was like an opening night party where f you saw everyone you'd known in 76 was there 40 years later, which was very educational, especially the ones who'd been in music all their life who were going, uh, what's that? Could you <laughs> think? Including me. Um, out of that, uh, The Damned, you know, they did a 40th anniversary re-release of New Rose, uh, 40th anniversary of the album, coming a first album being released again. And I just got a phone call out of the blue asking if I would help them with a couple of these things, like MC and Night at, again at the Hovenang. So, yeah, I talked with Dave and Captain quite a bit. In fact, I talked with all of the group, which is quite interesting to see, you know, where do you go as a working... How do you become a working musician out of being, quote, a punk band? And um, where does it lead you after 40 years? You know, Rat Scabies these days is down in the theatre pit on Shaftesbury Avenue. Who is he? Yeah. Doing what? Playing? Playing for, he just finished, when I talked to him in October, he just finished a Jane Horrocks uh, show. And he does West End plays. That's what he likes most. Good for him. And he will That's tell a wonderful me. wonderful idea. So if you go to the American tourists are going to Cambridge Circus tonight, and unbeknown to them, the rats scaving. Inches in front of them. <laughs> Thrashing away like animals from the muscles. There's probably a member of Splodgeness abound. That's right, there is. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, these pictures all appear in this terrific book. Fabulous. Um, and uh, a column from uh, Waterstones has brought a large number of copies along. If anybody would like John to sign one, do please do that. And please show your appreciation for the tremendous John Ingham. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 